Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in Luke today, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 26 through 38. So let's go ahead and grab your Bible, turn it to that text. Let's stand for the reading of the Word of God. As here at Gospel Fellowship, we acknowledge God's Word is inspired, it is inerrant, it is authoritative, the very Word of the true and living God. Again, Luke chapter 1 is our text. Let's begin in verse 26 as we listen together to the Word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom, for there, his, of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you go to any respectable art museum, and I'm not talking about those modern art museums, but if you go to a good art museum with uh, a fair representation of Western art in both painting and sculpture, you will notice one incontrovertible fact about that art museum, and that is that Jesus Christ is clearly the center of all history. And that's fairly undisputable if you go to a good art museum. Again, whether you're looking at uh, paintings or whether you're looking at sculpture or whether you're looking at architecture, a good art museum will show you that Jesus Christ is the center of all history. And I say that without any dispute whatsoever. It'll be clear to you, I promise. And amongst all of the mosaic of Christian art that you're going to see in a good art museum, like the Cleveland Art Museum, for instance, a very good art museum there. Uh, one of the scenes of the Bible that is probably going to be depicted more often than not is the very scene that we just looked at here this morning, the Annunciation of Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. Now, there's probably a lot of reasons why that particular scene has captured the heart of many artists before. And by the way, some very, very good artists have done the Annunciation. Uh, Caravaggio did that. Da Vinci did that. Sandro Botticelli did that. Van, Van Eck, Angelico, there's a lot of great portrayals of the Annunciation. A lot of them very similar too. If you look at some of the more common Annunciation paintings, you'll notice that Gabriel is often standing on the left side of the, of the view, Mary to the right. They're standing at right angles to the viewer. It's a very common depiction. Gabriel often has two wings rather than six or more. I'm not sure exactly why that is. Maybe it's just easier to paint him that way. Very often either light is streaming into the face of Mary or perhaps she's wearing a halo. 
And Mary's face usually is, is void of emotion, which I find a little bit striking, especially given what we've just read here in this text. And one wonders why the Annunciation is such a gravitational scene in the Scriptures. Now, no doubt it's an important scene. You, you may suggest, perhaps, that in Western culture there is an undue, highly raised affection for Mary, perhaps due to Roman Catholic influence on their, their doctrines of Mariology. Uh, but maybe more charitably, we might say that there's something beautiful about the Annunciation because it is sort of the mixing of the worlds. You have the angelic world conversing with the human world. You have the spiritual worlds sort of in this interchange moments of, of great truth with the material or the physical world. Uh, there's something beautiful about that. Not only that, but it's true what the angel says. What Gabriel says to Mary is incontrovertibly and monumentally true, this announcement that Christ is going to come into the world. And so you have here kind of a rare moment where the artists and the theologians agree on the centrality of this particular moment in redemption history, which we're going to look at here today in our text. Uh, I want to mention, if you're wondering why we didn't open up to Revelation today, is because we're going to take a very brief break from the apocalypse. I think it's a good place to pause we're going to come up on chapter 21 and chapter 2 here in a couple of weeks, but we're going to set that aside for four sermons or so on the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. It's a good time also seasonally for us to reflect on the doctrine of the Incarnation. So you can expect that for a couple of weeks here. Um, let me say a little bit more about Luke's Gospel since we haven't been in there and it seems weird to just kind of strike up in one particular place. Luke is very concerned with historical accuracy. In fact, if you have your Bible, I just want to draw your attention very quickly to the first paragraph of chapter 1 because Luke is not only a physician, he's a doctor, but he's also a very excellent historian. Luke makes an important point to suggest in verse 2 of chapter 1 that he is going to consult eyewitnesses uh, he's going to deliver to his audience here, Theophilus, which means lover of God, what he, what he is giving to us as a, a, com a compilation of the narrative of the things that have transpired. And not only that, but he says in verse 3 that he has followed these things very closely, and so he wants to give an orderly account. Now, for those of you who might try to compare Christianity to myth or legend, I think that's going to be a, a faulty endeavor to do so because the myths and the legends have very little similarity to Christianity. Luke is consumed, for instance, with persons and genealogies and datable events in particular places, much more so than any of the myths. And I've read quite a bit of the myths. I've read Ovid, for instance, or several of them, where a lot of the, the Greek myths and legends, they have no similarity to any sort of historical fact and Luke just jumps out in chapter 1 and says, that's exactly what I'm going to give you, is historical fact. And again, it's going to be places and names and dates and cities and genealogical lists and datable events. Luke is very concerned to give us an orderly historical account of the things that have transpired here. Now, let me just say this, and we're going to jump into the text. Whenever we deal with texts like this, and especially also on Resurrection Sunday, months from now, we have the danger of the sin of familiarity. And what I mean by that is that because these texts are familiar to us, there is a sort of pride of the ego that rises up and says, oh yes, yes, I know this text, I know this text backwards and forward, 
and your mind has a tendency to just kind of glance over the details. And again, that's the sin of familiarity because in our pride, we think we already have all of this mastered. And so I had to force myself, even as a pastor this week, I'm like, no, I'm not going to even look at any of my old sermons. I'm going to do full brand new exegesis of this text because I don't want to have that kind of lazy mentality that I think I know this passage when in fact there may be some things here for me to see again as with fresh and bright eyes. So what I want to do here this morning is pretty simple. We're going to divide this text into three parts. First, I want to spend some time on the announcement that Gabriel brings to Mary. So we'll look at that announcement. In fact, we're going to divide that even into two pieces. And then secondly, we're going to look at Mary's objection to what the angel says. As you find, she has a very reasonable and quite a sane objection to the angel's initial announcement. And then third, we're going to look at the way that Gabriel responds by way of answer to Mary's objection. And I think we're going to find that it is a very forceful and compelling answer that Gabriel brings to her question. So with that in mind, Bible's out. I've got mine open. I hope you have yours open. Let's look, first of all, at the announcement that Gabriel brings to the Virgin Mary here. And this dramatic scene, painted many times in the, uh, in the art museums, the Annunciation. Let's look here at verse 26. You ready? Here we go, the announcement. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Even there, we see Luke's, uh, it's almost like he's compelled to give us names and datable events and places and genealogical material here. Now, he mentions, first of all, the angel Gabriel, which is very interesting because in the Bible, uh, myriads of angels are mentioned, but only twice is an angel ever named. And of course, you probably know that Michael is one and Gabriel is the other. Now, Gabriel has already appeared throughout redemption history in other places. For instance, the other place in the Old Testament is the book of Daniel, where he shows up twice. In the book of Daniel, he's named twice. Gabriel, by the way, his name means warrior of God or mighty man of God. That's what his name means. So he shows up twice in the Old Testament, twice also in the New Testaments, okay? That's interesting because, again, most of the time the angels are anonymous, which is to say that their message is more important than themselves. Angels don't typically show up and try to present themselves as anybody that's important or anything like that. But here Gabriel shows up uh, to Mary, and notice he's already showed up earlier in chapter 1. If you go back to his his announcement to Zechariah, he announces himself in chapter 1, verse 19, when he says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. I find that remarkable. Okay, So here is a, a heavenly message now coming down, given to men. Matthew's gospel, by the way, also has an annunciation scene, but uh, it's a little bit different from Luke's. It's not a contradiction at all, just a different perspective Matthew's gospel does not name Gabriel in particular, and in fact, Matthew's gospel seems to emphasize the annunciation of the message to Joseph, whereas Luke tends to focus a little bit more on Mary. So we have that in distinction. That's why we have multiple gospels to give us multiple perspectives on this. Now, one thing I want to point out right out of the get-go about Gabriel's announcement here is that it has 
both a subjective and an objective component to it. And I want to draw your attention to that. Now, what do we mean by subjective and objective? Well, subjective has to do with the individual, right? An objective is just like bald fact, regardless of how the individual takes it. Well, look at the subjective announcement that Gabriel has for Mary here. In fact, he comes across, Gabriel does, as very pastoral to her heart. And Gabriel is rather concerned with Mary's own disposition, her reception to this announcement. Here's what I mean by that. Look carefully at the text. He came to her, verse 28, and said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now the translation, Hail Mary, full of grace, is probably one of the most misleading translations of Scripture that there could ever be. Because the translation, Hail Mary, full of grace, seems to suggest that the angel is giving undue honor to Mary. That's not at all what's happening here. Okay? Gabriel is, in fact, bringing comfort to Mary when he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The reason he's doing that is because Mary is rightly and very understandably aghast by the fact that there's an angel standing in front of her, Right? She is surprised by this. She is, in one of my favorite words, gobsmacked by what is happening in front of her in that particular moment. And this, by the way, all of the paintings, whether it's Caravaggio or anyone else, they all get this wrong, I think, about this moment. Because they all portray Mary in kind of this confident, almost emotionless state of receiving this message but when Gabriel comes, comes down, he pays very careful attention here to comfort her because he knows that she's beside herself. Mary's entire world is about to be flipped over on top of itself right now, and understandably so, and you would be shocked too. And by the way, most of the time angels show up in the Bible, get out the smelling salts because somebody faints or goes down, right? And so, of course, his first word is this subjective word of comforting to Mary. Now let's pay careful attention to what the angel says to her because this is actually rather poignant. Notice what he says. He, he really says three things to her. First, he says, you are favored. And he says that twice for emphasis. You are favored of the Lord. Uh, this is a, a announcement of God's sovereign, gracious, merciful, benevolent favor to Mary as a person. Okay, As a human. He's speaking to her in this moment. You're favored. You are loved. And, and not only that, but he says, the Lord is with you. The Lord is present with you, Mary. You're not going to go through this alone. Don't worry about what I'm going to tell you next. The Lord is going to stand with you and beside you throughout all of this. No matter what you face, God is going to be standing with you and beside you the whole time. And that's why then he says to her, do not be afraid. So these three things are the subjective message to Mary. You are favored, right? The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid. And by the way, Mary needs this. She needs this word of comfort more than anything else right now. Okay, She needs this gospel message now. And the reason that Mary is to be comforted is because of the objective message that Gabriel is about to announce to her in just a moment. So even though there's a sense in which this comforting word is for her, in this particular unique moment in redemption history, Listen, this is also a gospel word of comfort for all of us here too as well. Because what is, he's going to say next about the coming of the Son of God into the world brings you that same 
the subjective comfort in the gospel. You are favored, Christian believer. The Lord is with you, Christian believer. Uh, do not be afraid of anything that's going to happen to you. Okay? So first of all, he comes to comfort Mary. I, th- I, find, that, I find that rather, uh, rather comforting myself. Now, what shall we, let's just pause here parenthetically. What shall we say about Mary? Uh, shall we take encouragement from Mary's response here? Yes, I think so. No question about that. Look at, it, look at what she does in verse 38 of the same text, right? Wrong page here for me. Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So, so she responds very obediently here. Can we take encouragement from Mary? Absolutely. Can Mary be my favorite character in the Bible? Sure, no problem with that. Should we esteem Mary so that we begin to revere her in a worshipful way? To that, we must say, absolutely not. That kind of worshipful reverence is due only to the one who's going to be announced next. And with that, let's go to the objective portion of the angel's message here. Gabriel says to her, look at this, verse 31. Now, this is, this is the central core of this message here. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, I don't mean to bore you with the grammar, but in the Greek, there is five future indicative verbs here future indicative verbs and what that what that means is that what he's about to say here is absolutely certain to come to pass there is no sense in which these are like conditional futures like maybe this is going to happen or it's possible that no these five future indicative verbs that announce absolute certainty and what the angel says here okay is that the one whom the patriarchs have been longing for the one whom the law pointed forward to in types and shadows, the one that the prophets decreed, that the, the one that the martyrs risked their blood for, yes, all of the scriptures pointing forward to in the messianic prophecies, this one is imminently now to come. That's what the angel is saying here. Okay, And let's just look at these five future indicatives here. You will conceive, Mary, more on that mystery in just a moment, especially with Mary's objection to this. Uh, Secondly, he will be great, so great, in fact, that he's going to be worthy of our worship and our adoration in a way that Gabriel and Mary are not. And to give Gabriel or Mary that kind of adoration would be a grave error, but this one is going to be worthy of that. Not only that, but he will be called the Son of the Most High here we begin to see that beautiful doctrine. Here's a big word coming. The hypostatic union, meaning that this Son of God has both the divine nature and the human nature in one person, the Son of God. He is the Son of the Most High. Look at that language there. He will, fourth, he will inherit the throne of David. This is the one to whom the Davidic covenantal promises have been pointing forward to since the time of David. And not only that, but look at this. Look at this. There will be no end to his kingdom. Now let's just pause there and make a connection to our studies in Revelation. Because what have we been saying about the kingdom of Christ in the book of Revelation? We're saying that he is in a position now of rulership since he ascended to the right hand of the Father 
and his kingdom, there will be no end to it all the way until he comes back at his second coming to judge the living and the dead. There's no parentheses there. There's no intermittence there. Since the time Christ was ascended to the right hand of the Father, it is true, his kingdom has no end. And so everything that the angel says here is exactly right and according to the biblical prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now, let's move secondly then to Mary's objection to this. And we see the objection here in verse 34. A very sane and rational objection, I might add here. Look at her question, verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Good question. Very good question. That's the question, actually. Now, let's be careful here because in the Bible, there are two kinds of questions, right? There are, first of all, those hard-hearted, skeptical, kind of recalcitrant questions that we see as, for instance, when the Pharisees are constantly trying to trick Jesus, right? We call those the hard-hearted, skeptical questions. And we know how those questions are formed. Those kinds of questions are usually a setup so that the person, the interlocutor, is going to make a mistake. You're hoping that uh, they're either going to make a factual error or they're going to walk themselves into a contradiction or they're going to paint themselves into the kind of corner that they can't easily get out of. Every single time, almost, that the Pharisees or the Sadducees came to Jesus and it said that they asked him a question, very often it was one of those paint-yourself-in-a-corner type questions. Okay, But, and let's be fair here, there's another kind of question that people can, can ask. Those are those meek, uh, sincere, gentle-hearted, faith-seeking, understanding-type questions in which a person is, uh, is truly baffled by the mystery of what they have just encountered, and they seek further clarification. Now I ask you, which kind of question is Mary asking here? Is she asking a skeptical, hard-hearted question, or is this a faith-seeking, understanding kind of question? What do you think? Well, it's obviously the latter and not the former. This is a very sincere question, and it's a good question because Mary lives in the world of objective truth. She lives in a world with biological realities. She lives in a, in a, in a world of precedence and a historical verifiable expectation. And so for Mary to ask a question, how shall this be? Uh, that's perfectly understandable and a perfectly reasonable question. In fact, more to that same point, um, this is the question, isn't it? Because everything that is to follow in the angel's answer uh, weighs heavily upon how Gabriel is going to deal with this question. And let me just, let me just say this, that, um, you know, we Christians, we like, to, we like to sometimes argue amongst each other about certain things, doctrinally and otherwise. There are a lot of questions that, that are important, but yet the faith does not rise or fall upon the answering of them. So, for instance, you and I, we could argue about what is the best translation of the Bible all day long. And you say the King James, and I say the New King James, and someone else does the ESV. But Christianity doesn't stand or fall on how that question is answered, I hope, right? 
Or we could argue about the best form of, of biblical church government. I think it's Presbyterianism. My Lutheran friends think it's something else. Uh, we could argue about the mode of baptism. Uh, we sometimes even talk about that at Presbytery meetings. We talk about immersion and sprinkling and pouring, which I think is the best, but we can argue about that. Listen, there are some questions that the faith itself does not stand or fall upon it, but I want you to know that Mary's question is one of those questions, in fact, in which the entirety of Christianity depends on its answer. It really does. This is something like if either God created the world out of nothing or he didn't. It's, it's like one of those kind of questions. Like, did he or didn't he? Well, it matters. This is like whether, whether Jesus died on the cross and took away our sins or not. It's really significant which one of those would be true. It's like what, it's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember where he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus and Paul makes this, this incredibly important point that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we are literally wasting our time and our faith is, is useless and our hope is in vain. This is one of these questions that is so significant, okay, that when our ancestors in the faith, when they wrote the Apostles' Creed and they reduced the Christian faith to three sentences, the virgin birth is in it. That's how important this is. And let's just tip a couple of dominoes here, because if the virgin birth is not true, then, then what, what can we conclude if it's not true? Well, we can conclude that the early church probably stretched the facts and, and exaggerated a little bit. And, and if that's true, then, then the Bible clearly goes too far here, because the Bible definitely says that this was a virginal conception. And if that's true then what does that say about the nature of Jesus Christ? Is there any such thing as a hypostatic union between the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ in one person, our Redeemer, now and forever? Is that out the window too? And then, and then we have to ask, um, is Christianity essentially reduced to some sort of an ethical system like Stoicism or uh, Epicureanism? Is that all we are? We're just, a, we're just another eth ethical, moral system? Is Jesus then no better than some of the other human teachers like Socrates or Plato? Maybe he's a genius like da Vinci, but, but what is he really? Understand, Gospel Fellowship, Mary's question is vitally significant, and how we answer that question will in some ways determine whether or not Christianity stands or falls. So, Gabriel, uh, no pressure, but you better have a good answer to this. And in fact, when we look thirdly to Gabriel's answer, what we find is that he has a very good answer to this question. So let's turn then thirdly to the answer that Gabriel gives her. Now, uh, his answer comes in verses 35 to 38. So you're going to want to pay close attention to this paragraph. But um, I want to break this down into three answers that Gabriel gives here, because I think he actually replies to the question in three different ways. So if you're taking an outline, pay careful attention to this, because first, Gabriel is going to give an instrumental answer, okay, an instrumental answer. Second, he's going to give an analogical answer, an answer by way of analogy, and then third, he's going to give a categorical answer. So notice the way that Gabriel is going to divide this answer into three parts, all of which are very helpful. So let's break down his answer here 
beginning first with the instrumental answer. And the instrumental answer is the presence and agency of the Holy Spirit, okay? The instrument through which this conception will take place, as Gabriel explains, is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 35, okay? Where he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay. So therein is that hypostatic union, which again is the doctrine of the two natures of Christ. He is both divine, fully, fully divine, and he is fully human in one person. But notice here that Gabriel, as he explains this, he says that the instrumental means of the virginal conception of Mary is not going to be a human father, okay? but rather it's going to be the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit himself. Now, this is very remarkable, I think, because um, in point of fact, all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned here in this verse. Do you see them? All of them are. All three persons. You have the Holy Spirit there in verse 35. The power of the Most High, which, re which refers usually to the Father. And then you have the child, which is the Son of God. So what's happening here is deep Trinitarian mystery. And I don't expect you to understand it any better than I do myself, but Gabriel points to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit as the instrumental cause through which this virginal conception takes place. And the word here, he gives us a word picture to help mortal, frail, finite minds to understand this is the word overshadowed, okay? So this is a non-physical, non-material type of conception as opposed to all other forms of human conception as we have ordinary uh, procreation, right? Now let's just think about that word overshadowed for just a moment because it is a beautiful word picture if you kind of picture what's happening here. When you think of something overshadowing, what do you have? Typically you have the sun above, like the source of lights, and you have something in between that, let's say the clouds, and then you have the overshadowing effect which takes place down on the earth. And so that you could say that the, uh, the, the park is overshadowed by the clouds, or you could say that the field is overshadowed by the clouds here. And so what's interesting about that beautiful analogy is you have this glorious, beautiful uh, source of refulgence and light and glory and shining brightness and you have something that intervenes such that the effect is an overshadowing effect. But again, it's non-material and non-physical contact taking place here so that we can rightly say that Mary was a virgin before this conception took place and still she is a virgin until, the scriptures say, she was married to Joseph. Okay, so now, whether or not that fully answers all of your questions, I, I doubt that it would because it doesn't answer all of my questions. Either all that simply to say, though, that the Christian faith has plenty of room for mystery and for marvel and for wonder. And if your faith doesn't have room for mystery, marvel, and wonder, then you're probably talking about some sort of rationalistic, reduced, truncated version of Christianity and not the real thing because we do have a place for mystery and wonder. Okay, so that's what the angel gives us for the instrumental answer here. Now, second here, there is an analogical answer here, meaning an answer by way of analogy. Okay, so a proof of concept is cited. 
And the analogy here is Elizabeth's conception. Notice how he gives her by way of analogy. Look at verse 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. So he gives an analogy here. Okay, so what's an analogy? Well, an analogy is, an, is a comparison between two things. And in all analogies, there's a likeness, a similarity, and a dislikeness or dissimilarity here. And the likeness is obviously in this, that in the conception of Elizabeth, there's also a miraculous component, right? What is that? Well, because she's beyond the age of, of, of childbearing. And once again in the scriptures, we see that God is sovereign over fertility and conception and childbearing. And so the angel Gabriel gives her an analogical answer to say, look, if God can do it with Elizabeth by overruling the normal course of human procreation by the fact that Elizabeth was too old to conceive, right? Though there is a human father in that case, Zacharias, and that's the dissimilarity in the analogy, Yet if that is true, then God can also work miraculous wonders in your case. Now, what the angel is doing here is he is reasoning, and we call this in logic, uh, an argument from lesser to greater. Okay? So if he can do the lesser, which is easier with Elizabeth, he can do the greater, which is the virginal conception of Mary. And we see arguments from lesser to greater quite often in the scriptures. For instance, when the Bible says, if the Lord loves the sparrows, then, then he also loves and cares for you. That's an argument from lesser to greater. Okay? If I could, and I, and I can't, but if I could stand before you and levitate one foot off the ground, then it might be reasonable to suggest that I could levitate two feet off the ground, reasoning from the lesser to the greater. So the angel makes an answer by way of analogy that if the Lord can miraculously work in the conception of Elizabeth by way of supernatural intervention, then so also can he do this working wonder as well. And so there's his second answer. Now third, there is a, finally then a categorical answer as well. And that is contained in verse 37 where he says this, for nothing will be impossible with God. Categorically so. Um, if we're talking about the God of the Bible, then there is nothing that he cannot do. If we're talking about a world in which miracles exist, then God can certainly work even this wonder, a virginal conception. And so when he says that nothing will be impossible with God, of course what the angel is doing is he is reminding Mary of the doctrine of the omnipotence of God, which is to say he's absolutely sovereign over all of creation. Okay? So don't lose your doctrine of God here when we come to these mysteries and these wonders because God is omniscient, which means he knows, he knows all things. He is omnipotent, which means he has all power. And he is omnipresent as well. So we remember which kind of a God we're talking about here. For those of you in the Francis Schaeffer class in Sunday school, okay, Schaeffer constantly warned Western Christianity that you do not form this sort of two-tier upper and lower story version of Christianity in which the upper story and the lower story never converse. No, Schaeffer says that's dangerous to the church. It's dangerous to the Western world. If you're going to have, categorically speaking, 
a God like the God of the Bible, then a priori, you, ex- you accept and you understand the fact that this particular God, the only God that is, he can work these kinds of wonders. And so as it turns out, the angel Gabriel, with his instrumental answer, his analogical answer, and his categorical answer pertaining to the sovereignty of God, he gives a very, very powerful apologetic, in fact, for the doctrine of the virgin birth, which I'm telling you here, Christianity stands or falls upon. There is no in-between. It's either true or it's false. And praise God, it's true. Wrapping up, does your faith permit this kind of miraculous wonder? What kind of a trust do you have in God? If If you come to these kinds of texts, And the only kinds of questions that you summon are those kind of skeptical, hard-hardened, those recalcitrant type of paint yourself into a corner type of questions, then of course this is going to be too much for you to believe. I understand that. Okay. But but if your faith is such that you believe in the sovereignty of an absolute God, the kind of God who created the world in six days, the kind of God who raised his son from the dead then accepting, in fact, embracing and rejoicing in the doctrine of the virgin birth is no obstacle to us. We trust in him and we love him. And moreover, not only that, but but I ask you this, is this the kind of truth that your soul needs? Do you need this? I hope you do. Mary did. Uh, Mary found herself in a place in which she needed a confirming, comforting, word from above and that word came in the gospel of the son and the the word of God and the gospel of the son was you are favored the Lord is with you do not be afraid same exact applications for you and I today Uh, Mary received it in her situation we receive it in ours finally uh, do you believe that the world needs to hear this message I do uh, because, because look, at, look at what the angel said in verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Brothers and sisters, we, we live in a world uh, that is so dark at times. We live in a world that is so corrupt at times, so hopeless at times, that uh, this is the only and brightest light that we can possibly hope for, that Christ would come and that he would reign. Let's go ahead.